All right. Well, we'll we will just dive right into it. Um, so welcome back to everybody. We are here for episode number, is it 37 of the Flatiron Syndicate Motorsports Podcast. And we have with us again a special guest, someone who probably needs no introduction, Reese Millen from Reese Millen Motorsports. And we've got uh, Ryan from DSX Motorsports and Scotty from the shop here as well. And uh, well, Reese, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. And thank you very much for making the time to, uh, to chat with us today. Really appreciate <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Hey, glad to be here today. And uh, sorry, I messed up the last time we attempted to do this. <laughs> oh, not at all. Not at all. Well, and, and so so as we're recording this, Pikes Peak has happened. And so it's kind of cool that we got you on after the fact, because we can now talk about just, just everything about that. But before we get to that, um, as we started talking about kind of getting you on for the podcast, you were actually out prepping to run a different race, the, the Nora 1000 which uh, I wanted to actually talk to you about that first, because that's, can you, can you tell us a little bit about that race, uh, just kind of what it is or how it's structured? Yeah, Nora is actually the oldest off-road race in uh, Mexico in the Baja Peninsula. Um, 1967, I believe, was the first year it was run. Wow. Um, and it was kind of, at that point, it was racing, you know, bikes were effectively the, the fastest. And then um, the Myers Manx became the first four-wheel vehicle to, to win the race overall and conquer the peninsula. The roads back then were quite different than what they are now in a sense that uh, they were very remote with kind of uh, no GPS coordinates. But then again, today, with the size of the vehicles, the suspension travel, the size of the tires, the roads are far, far rougher. Um, wow. It's a five-day event. Um, held very much like a traditional rally, but over 1,300 total miles, including stage wow. mile transits. Um, that it is an incredible event, and it is designed using the smoother roads of Baja um, to encourage uh, historic vehicles to enter, as well as evolution modern vehicles. Um, it is an event that you could actually compete in a standard rally car uh, if you chose to, although it would be quite rough. But okay. in saying that, this year we ran uh, our own program in our four-wheel drive off-road car that we designed, uh, loosely based on a big rally car, uh, and one overall. And I uh, ran a program for Tanner Faust, who everyone here is familiar with, um, and uh, with a production-based two-wheel drive Volkswagen ID4. So that will kind of give you the indication um, of the capabilities that is required and then the differences in the classes as for the full EV car and first to conquer the Baja Peninsula. Um, so there was a great connection for Volkswagen back to their roots uh, and just a great event overall over those five days. Pacing yourself, they give you a, not like a traditional service where you have 20 minutes in and out. Uh, they give you a minimum and a maximum. So you have between each stage up to one hour but in that case, you can fix something without any negative time against your race time, uh, but you could fall back behind slower cars that give you a slower race time. So it's a great event. Um, you're served a cold beer and a couple of tacos as soon as you cross the finish line. So <laughs> well, yeah. well needed, I'm sure, at that point. At that point, uh, pretty much everyone just signed on for it, right? <laughs> yep, yep. Wow, man, that sounds like an, an amazing race. It sounds like a huge war of attrition it, with that many miles and that many stage miles and that many days. Like just to keep the car together probably is as much of a challenge as it is to go fast. Yeah, you know, for the most part, the off-road vehicles are built uh, a little bit more along the lines of tanks um, mm -hmm. than they, the delicate side of trying to make a rally car light and fast. Um, but there's good notes. Um, and again, the road variation is, is still very good, more in tune to what a rally road is than a traditional trophy truck style Baja road. Um, and you find a pace that is different. Rallying is 10 tenths, 100%. Uh, this is, say, 7 tenths, 70%. Right. Because you haven't pre-run, you don't have stage notes. Um, and with 20 big trucks on the road in front of you, Regardless if you had all that information, the road is never going to be the same. So you find a pace where you can push, you examine the terrain, and then you examine the terrain when you can't push. Um, so it's all about saving the vehicle, but having fun and going fast. Sure. Yeah, it sounds like an amazing race for sure. Well, and let's, let's talk about the vehicle. So this is, this is the one that you designed, which is called the Jackal. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's correct. Yep. Okay. We, we, we actually talked to Stefan Verdier uh, a few weeks ago, and he had, I guess he was part of, of that uh, Nora run that you guys did, or, or at least the testing for it. And he was telling us some pretty interesting things about this, this, this car that you developed. And one of the most interesting points that he made is that kind of maybe like what you were alluding to, when you think desert running, you think kind of like those, the big buggies and the big trucks that are really kind of big lumbering vehicles. And he said that you kind of took a different approach with this vehicle. It's, it's a smaller engine. It's, it's maybe a lighter chassis. And, and he said you actually designed it more like a rally car versus kind of like a, a traditional trophy truck. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about kind of why, it, like, if that's, if that's right and kind of why you picked to de design the vehicle in that way. Yeah, so it all comes from our diverse background in motorsport. Um, you know, the heritage of the company and myself, 10 years in traditional stage rally uh, and then five years in rally cross. Uh, in rally cross, we were exposed to what was referred to then as a super lights car, which was a two frame spec car, the Ford motor, uh, and a transaxle style gearbox that had a power takeoff unit that drove to the front differential, making it full drive. Uh, that unit was from a company called Sadev. We owned a couple of lights cars. We ran them for customers. It was a, a like a lease program. Um, so we had these parts sitting on the shelf. Uh, Rally Cross kind of folded. Um, and we had already felt that coming on with our factory program that we had with Hyundai. So we transitioned into the off-road space and uh, we chose to start with the UTVs as what was then six years ago or more, the entry point into off-road racing. Um, we won the 2016 Baja 1000 with one of our race chassis Polaris-based uh, UTVs. And we finished 24th overall and we started off the line like 210th. Um, so it, it proved a concept to us, um, maybe not the, uh, the followers in the market, but to us um, as, as kind of a, a new entry point as a leader that yeah. we could massage these two combinations of uh, a rally super lights car and a UTV and saw the UTV market as the new entry point into the market but where were people going to go next? It was a massive jump to go to a trophy truck. So we set out to design uh, a big rally car based on suspension design like a UTV using this gearbox from the lights car. So that's kind of the combination. And if you break it down, um, the wheel and tire weighs 70 pounds. Uh, it's easily 50%, if not more, than a trophy truck. Our wow. fuel cell is 40 pounds. A trophy truck runs around 90 to 100, sorry, 40 gallons. A trophy truck runs 90 to 100 gallons. Uh, a trophy truck weighs around 7,000 pounds. We weigh 3,200 pounds. So we're more than half of that. And horsepower, again, they're about 900 to 1,000. We're 450. It puts it in a completely different driving space. Uh, and on top of that, we're now we're four-wheel drive. Um, yeah. It is super fun. It is... Uh, I'm going to say it's more fun than a WRC car because you got 10 more inches of travel, 24 inches of travel, 500 volt yeah. power pretty much, um, six-speed sequential paddle shift, um, and you're running these stages that are anywhere from, for Nora at least, 40 miles to 160 miles long, uh, or in your traditional Baja races for the score series, uh, start green flag and a finish that is some 22 hours long so we just kind of took all our experience again as a recap and and came up with this new design and we went to nora um with the intent of winning our class which was called class one unlimited buggy and ended up beating the top trophy trucks as well so uh by 15 seconds but hey it doesn't matter wow. nice. and wins a win awesome <laughs> yeah man yeah it, it was it was the way stefan described it is that it it basically is is like a, a rally car on steroids and and that you can drive it like a rally car it turns and it breaks like a rally car would and and like with you describing kind of where the the, the drivetrain and the setup comes from that makes total sense man that that sounds like an incredibly fun platform yeah, yeah it that's, is. go ahead it's got that 2.3 liter EcoBoost, right yeah so so we started with the the Ford EcoBoost. Um, that engine, for 
viewers that are not familiar with it is pretty amazing. It, it is like a big diesel truck engine, um, 2.3 liters turbocharged, small turbocharger, but a very, very heavy crank. So you can clutch release in this car and drive away, idle away at five miles an hour. And at 2400 RPM, it is making over 350 foot pounds of torque. Um, at, at 3200 RPM, I believe it is, it's making 470 foot pounds of torque and peak power is about 410. We ran 3,000 miles on the 2.3 liter engine, um, but the biggest struggle was the ambient temperatures and how long the stages are running in the desert, uh, different than rallying and so forth, um, or cooling packages and so forth. So where we needed to go above 109 miles an hour, um, the torque curve and the power curve and the size of the turbo pretty much everything falls off at around 5,000 RPM. So very efficient to 100, but then after that, pretty much flatline. So now we have actually done uh, upwards of 6,000 miles or more on the transmission. We just kept adding more power, adding more power, adding more power. And now we're actually up to a um, an LS3, which is a spec engine. Um, and that's what we're running now. So 450 torque around 495 horsepower and we that's what we ran at Nora with the longer faster stages where you're sitting at 120 miles an hour for sustained periods of time of I don't know wow. 20 20 miles um, we just needed the more power on the top end but the drivability from the 2.3 EcoBoost is amazing wow man either one of those power plants sounds pretty much like an amazing amount of fun yeah, it moves, it moves the car into different classes, um, six-cylinder and below, and then V8 uh, and above uh, non-covered tire, you're in a buggy class or a truck body, you could be an unlimited truck. So the chassis with two different engine combinations can fit actually six different classes with different bodies in, in the series. And we have customers running in three different classes, so it's worked out really well. That's awesome. And, and just to clarify, so like you, you had some parts that you'd use in like in your, in your GRC car and stuff, but this is something that is designed in-house at, uh, at Reese Mill Racing. Is that right? Yeah, the, all the suspension links. Um, if, if you were to kind of uh, take the skins off a Can-Am, a UTV or a Polaris UTV, it's a long trailing link design like that. Um, but in this case, we're 51 inches center of pivot to center of wheel. Um, big upright, uprights, all billet machine. The brakes are off an R5 WRC car, Alcon brake. So it's the best of the best. And, and, and in between, um, it's definitely not a UTV. If you put it side by side, it's massive compared to a UTV. But it's very small compared to a trophy truck. So sure. it's the best of both worlds. We've designed it all in-house. Um, and we've built four of them now for customers. And and I believe we're going to take a couple of more orders here shortly. So it's been a great program and um, it's fun to kind of have a, you know, a napkin thought at a bar one night and, uh, and bring it to reality. So, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a really awesome proof of concept and like, it just like when you talk it through, it makes so much sense. Uh, yeah. It's very cool. I, I would hope that like at some point, maybe like American rally would have a good class for that. And I know that they they're starting to let the UTVs in. But like to be able to like run a car like that in a normal stage rally, I think that would just be so much fun. Yeah, well, if, there's a couple of videos posted on YouTube um, under Nora 1000, and and you can see, you know, there's 20, 30 minute stages, um, and the car just drives just like a rally car. Um, the differentials we had to work on quite a bit hmm. because you're on a 37 inch tall tire. Standard rally car tires around 25, 25 and a half inches. So it had a lot more load leverage on how the differentials were activating. Uh, and then obviously going through all the big bumps repetitively under power. So we worked really hard on the differentials. It's totally different than a traditional rally setup, um, but still the drivability and, and the driving experience is just like a rally car. Yeah, that's cool. Sounds fun. Well, and, and considering that you took that all on, I think it's safe to say that you, you, I almost get the sense that you actually look for a challenge, like a big challenge, like to, to, to have this idea and decide like, I'm, we're, we're going to make this thing. That is a huge challenge, which is my segue to Pikes Peak, because that is a, 
like for, for most of us, that is a massive, massive challenge in and of itself. The first question I wanted to ask you is like, because I know you've been doing a lot of the, these long endurance desert races, which is like lots of miles, lots of prep, really a war of attrition. And then you have Pikes Peak, which is kind of on the surface, it's one run, it's 12 and a half miles. It would seem like those things are entirely different. But having been through race week, there really is a little bit of a war of attrition, like to run Pikes Peak. Would you say, is there, do you feel like there's any similarity in the way that you approach like a long endurance race to a, a Pikes Peak race week or, or are they totally different things? Yeah, I think you know, we can all attest to um, the hell week that is Pikes Week peak, getting up early and, and having long days and trying to go to sleep knowing that you've got to get up early again. Um, that is physically uh, exhausting. Um, from the driving standpoint, it all comes down to mental. And I think for me, um, what I enjoy about Pikes Peak, what I try to give it everything that I have is all based on the sprinting element as you mentioned, the difference to off-road racing that comes from the foundation of rallying and going to the start of a stage um, that a road that you may not have seen for a year, two years, five years, whenever you were last on this road. Um, for the most part, I know there's, there's wrecking and so forth, but, but still, you know, conditions can change. And, and uh, you're going to hit that stage, that first corner, you're going to feel that grip, and then you're going to push for a good stage time. Um, and that's what I love about Pikes Peak. Um, it is now a tarmac event that a lot of people may refer to it as a road race, but it really is a tarmac rally. Um, the setup of the car, the conditions of the road and, and how you have to attack it. And it is the only event that I get to give a hundred percent off the line. Now, um, you cannot, you cannot risk it all in Baja like that. So, yeah, the challenge for me is adapting to new cars, to the road, um, and feeling out that first couple of corners and going, okay, this is good, let's go. And how much do you think, I mean, I've been up there with Scott Crouch for probably the last eight years, and just knowing that, like, the morning practice days, you know, you're, you're starting running at 5 o'clock, you know, Tuesday through Friday. Um, you, you run until about 8, 8.30, and then come race day, conditions can be completely different. Like, for example, this, this time, um, we didn't even know that, that part of the road was wet until we saw video of Scott sliding, you know, coming into, into Ski Hill. And, I mean, how much does that mess with you not knowing exactly what the road's going to be like on race day? Yeah, it, it definitely, that, that's again the mental side of it. Um, we prepare in everything that we do. I am go to ridiculous levels. Um, answering your question first, we, we were taking uh, heat temperatures of the road every 30 minutes up to around 11 o'clock one morning staying up there. Um, so we were sampling the road temperatures from 8.30 when we finished, 9, 9.30, so on to about 11 when we predicted we would run at the latest. So we knew exactly when um, or where the road was going to be as far as temperatures based on ambient, based on surface temperature. Um, so that is one thing that I do purely to eliminate question. Last, last name is Millen. Thank you. Sorry, just got a package. No problem. No problem. Um, they don't know the um, last name. um so that's you know one thing that you can just eliminate from from your bank of questions as a driver that morning uh give me a road temperature i know what it's going to do i know what it's going to feel like um the unknown is as you mentioned um but typically it comes in a a pretty rapid transition from one or two corners if the road is going to have rain or be wet that happened to us in qualifying the first sector up to uh brown bush at the end of picnic ground straight away was dry uh we were out of sequence on when we were running we ran first when we would have liked to have run last but we needed to put a time up because it was wet and then the second sector was just all wet for us in qualifying and you just adapt accordingly um i've had rain uh before in previous years so you know you're on a slick tire you just mentally need to know that the temperature of the tires is falling off it's not increasing. You're not shearing the tire 
under right. high corners. So it is, it is its own event. Um, and then I think for us this year, the most rewarding thing for me personally, at least, was to be pitted against, you know, a top team uh, champion racing with uh, Romain Dumas behind the wheel to, to kind of measure myself against them, if, if anything. Sure, sure. You, you and Romain have a little bit of a history on that mountain. Uh, I, I seem to remember, I think it is still the closest margin of victory uh, when you were running the, the Genesis and he was running the 911. And was it a, a tenth or two tenths of a second that you ended up edging him out by? Yeah, 2012 for the overall win, it was 17 yeah. thousandths of a second. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man. I, I've likely reminded him that of that this year as a bit of a mind game, but unfortunately yeah. it didn't work. <laughs> yeah. Man. Well, and, and so, so to that, and so you, you kind of alluded to it. You've driven a lot of different cars up there. So you've driven, geez, I mean, so rear wheel drive cars, all wheel drive cars, gasoline powered cars. I, do I, I think I have this right that you're the first person to actually win the race overall in an electric car. Is right. that right? We did, we did that in 2014. Yep. Yep. I mean, so it, it sounds like you are, you, you have a huge advantage in that you've run this race so many times that you, I'm guessing that there's, there's still surprises, but maybe the number of surprises that you have at this point going in to a, a new race year with a new vehicle is, is a lot less than, than most any other, probably any other competitor that would, that would do that. But, but how, do you, how do you kind of like size up a, a, a new platform? You know, like this year, is you're, is you're going up there to run the Bentley or when you're running an electric platform versus a gasoline platform. How do you, what is your starting point for deciding like what your, what your approach is going to be for that given year? Yeah, for sure. So the Bentley Association uh, or partnership came about um, four years ago when uh, they were looking for a driver to go uh, from a promotional element to go after a Range Rover's record that was set by Paul Dollenbach. Um, lightly, loosely set, but there was a time on the board, so they had a goal to go after. Yep. Um, and we we attacked that with you know very much a, a racing mentality. Um, I think the best and biggest benefit I've had from Bentley, not that the program value is extreme, this year was a private tiers car that we borrowed back and raced. Um, it's not like a full full factory program, but they have given me more than anything that I've had is time in the vehicle to completely come up to speed and trust the vehicle before getting on the mountain and then being able to be very uh, methodical in the approach of time and, and again, placing the vehicle on the mountain. Um, Pikes Peak has changed from a lot of manufacturers being involved to a lot of privateers, which is fantastic. Um, and there's that goal of kind of going down the quarter mile, just wanting to go faster than the previous time you went down it, or in this case, challenging the mountain to get to the top and wanting to go faster than you did last time. Um, that foundation can really be only based on having time in the car and completely trusting the car and then pushing it to its limit on the mountain. There was uh, a couple of teams this year, um, a good friend, Paul Gerard showed up and we were going through tech and I'm like, how's it going? You ready for tomorrow's practice? And he says, no, we're not. And I'm like, well, you're in the middle section and you're back here on Friday. Why don't you blow off tomorrow, go to PPIR and get comfortable with the car, make some changes, have an entire day, the crew's not spent, um, and come up to speed of the car and, and then come up in the mountain. Then you can do Friday sections in the middle. He took that advice and applied it. And that's kind of what we did this year. We did two local tests. Um, here in Willow Springs in California before going to an altitude test that we did privately in the top of Independence Pass for um, engine calibration down to Aspen Raceway for engine calibration to fill the gaps, and then the two tire tests. Um, that's, you know, it takes money. It takes that's a time. lot of effort, yeah. Um, but it literally gave me the foundation when we came to the two tire tests. Race week was effectively... Uh, a rinse repeat all the homework was done and then race day was for me just to push and give it my all on the day so we started out the first day in the car I'd never never driven it I was really nervous to be honest because I hadn't been in a full GT race car with downforce and so forth um, I'd never had traditional 
um, motorsport ABS and traction control. Those were aids at Racing Pikes Peak or other series that were either not allowed or not in our budget or time frame to, to develop. Hmm. Um, so the car was the most sophisticated car, not the fastest, but the most sophisticated that I had ever been in. Um, and the first day was really, really kind of, I was pretty nervous. I didn't want to miss that, make a mistake. And I had a crew that were kind of like, why is this guy driving the car? He drove a production car and he's an off-road drift guy. Um, so I had a foundation that I needed to prove to myself before I needed to prove to them that I was the right choice. Um, and we developed, worked incredibly well together. I already had a setup on the car, but I was given a setup as a traditional road race car. Um, and then I gave feedback to the engineers. I placed the car on a track that was very much like Pike's Peak and let them make the changes based on my feedback. I could have quite easily asked for what I wanted, but we needed to build some harmony here between the team. And they, <laughs> they gave me a setup on day two, which was effectively how I would have rolled the car out of my shop if it was my car. And we took that setup to the mountain and it proved itself immediately that that it was right on spring rates on shocks on ride heights on rates the car was absolutely amazing on every part of the mountain and it's a mechanical grip road um it's not a downforce road you're not going through corners at 150 160 miles an hour and you have to effectively as i mentioned before bring a tarmac rally car soft um to this event when i ran my old mitsubishi I would put the stock springs and shocks on as it was delivered to the dealer because wow. that was better than any coilover system that I had tested on the mountain. Wow. So um, it worked out really good this year and, and the team was amazing and um, the car was absolutely on point until it wasn't. Well, and, and I, I don't want to dwell on that, but it, you, you had a mechanical issue on race day. Do you want to just kind of give us a, just a quick uh, a mention of, of what happened? Yeah, back, backing up a little bit on that, I guess, uh, recapping the confidence. Um, we had targets from the class record that were set by uh, David Donahue and uh, the Porsche GT2 RS Club Sport. Um, so we knew in practice where we needed to be for qualifying at least in certain sections. So the record for the class was... Um, a three minute, 55 second run. Um, that was uh, the qualifying section. And um, that was, you know, six miles of the run. We went there and our warm up and did a 406, did a 358, uh, a 354, a 352, and then a 350. Um, so we were in a good position there at five, to six seconds under the record in our first tire test on the mountain. We took a week off. We came back for the second tire test. And as I'd mentioned on my uh, kind of thought process mentally, um, hitting a stage like a rally or hitting a road cold, my warm up on the second tire test was a 350, right where we left off. And then we improved that down to a 48 and a 46. Um, at that point, that was. 10 seconds faster than race week than uh, the Porsche Ramon Dama had done in a dry qualifying run and what, she, what he repeated on race day. Um, on race day, it was up to me to push and, and we actually did a 3.41.2 uh, on the bottom section, which was actually faster than I had predicted the car would run by three and a half seconds. Um, we cleared sector one, sector two, we had the lead by 13 seconds. Unfortunately, we had an odd backfire the flame made it into the intake manifold which is carbon um, mixed with fuel and created a pretty big explosion yeah. um, it split the intake manifold apart and uh, we lost all boost all power and effectively only had for the most part first and second gear from Alp Park which is starting the longest part of the climb to to the finish line for what was 16 mile this year so 13 second lead uh, was eaten away into a four-second deficit and finishing second in class, but we finished behind the best on the mountain, so we're still very happy. Well, it was it was an impressive run right up until that point, and and you you I think kind of alluded that there might be a possibility of bringing this car back next year, and I, I can speak for all of us here that 
fingers are crossed that, that you guys all come back and, and we can see that car again and, and hopefully see it where it can get a full run because man, it's just, I mean, we want to know what it'll do. I'm sure you want to know what it'll do. What is it? What is possible with that car? Yeah, I think if you take anything out of this year, uh, no one got to set any new records. No one got a full run. Um, it really was a big test year. So to have a negative, um, I guess we're glad it happened this year. The, the fix, uh, in hindsight, is very, very simple. Um, but they had never seen this issue in any of their uh, racing. This is a traditional GT3 Bentley race car that built 25 of them. Um, okay, we're running more power, but they made changes to the intake manifold that was twice as thick. They had a belt line um, bonded onto it. Um, so they had done the precautions. It just, it was an oddity of the environment, I would say. So we now have the opportunity. Um, I proved myself behind the wheel. I was not the driver of recommendation for the first three months of the program, but I proved myself on speed on the mountain. So uh, I think I'll be back in the seat next year. And uh, I believe they are planning on coming back. A couple of changes on gearing. It's a six-speed. I never use six, so we'll move the gears around uh, and, and utilize the five that we used very, very well. Uh, a couple of changes to the engine, and I think the car will be um, very, very quick. It's already quick. It'll just be quicker. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious if you can – I don't know if you can say, but so who was crewing for the car? Because it, was, it, was it the crew that normally supported that car, which I think was – is it M-Sport? Or, or was it was it somebody else? It was a mixture of actually uh, three groups. Um, from my side of things, you ha I had my lead engineer, um, JR, who's been with me for 11 plus, 12 plus years um, through uh, Rallycross and, and all our off-road programs and everything that we've done. Uh, and then two of my other junior technicians who are super talented fabricators and technicians. Um, so the program was based under RMR. Then we had two special specialty people that worked for a company called KPAX, who is a road racing program, and they actually ran the Bentleys when Bentley was running an official program. Unfortunately, through COVID last year, um, that program was dissolved, uh, and a lot of those people dispersed everywhere else. So that was from the U.S. side of things. And then there was a program manager and then two gentlemen from M-Sport, who you mentioned. Uh, M-Sport run the Ford WRC program. And then as a non-conflict, they also ran this program as a road racing program designed and developed, built by M-Sport, along with the engine and everything else. Mm -hmm. um, so these, these cars are a work of art. Um, it's you know, you know, beyond words when you, you walk up on the car and see the attention to detail. But being that it is a 24-hour car, everything is built strong. And yeah. although Pikes Peak is only 12 miles long, um, it throws everything at you like it's a 1,200-mile Baja race. So, right. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, so it was a great group. Everyone gelled. Um, the M-Sport guys loved the event. They, you know, Some of the guys are 25-plus years um, experienced and had never been tested as hard as they had in this environment from engine tuning and so forth, um, turbocharger sizing, uh, response. Some of the things that they did on ignition curves and and wastegate control were absolutely amazing because we were still on the standard gear ratios. First gear was good for 65 miles an hour and I needed it bond <laughs> at 3000 RPM. Um, so they did some pretty amazing things on ignition timing and, and wastegate control to, to get that car to respond out of the hairpins. So it was really good working with them and then giving them feedback as well from my experience um, to, to help them think, um, differently, um, you know, for the environment. And, and I think they appreciated that. And I greatly appreciated their skill sets and talents. Would you, I mean, would you agree? I mean, especially as many different platforms as you have developed for, for Pikes Peak, that it, it is, it maybe just because of the alta, elevation or the altitude, but it, it really is kind of a unique environment. And I mean, this is something as we've been trying to run our car up the mountain for years, we, we've run into a lot of weird problems that we have to find solutions for. And it sounds like to a certain extent, because you, you have a car that's very well tested, very well developed and proven, but in a completely different environment, you still found some, some, some places like, like what you're just describing where you actually had to kind of 
go back to the drawing board and, and make some pretty significant changes to get the car to work at Pikes Peak, whereas it works everywhere else just fine. Yeah, you did right. And, you know, I kept pushing for, I don't care about horsepower, I want response. And that was for the first three or four months. That was my words to everyone. Um, I didn't get that. Uh, I, I got lots of horsepower and no response um, initially, but we set out to go to Independence Pass, which is 12 and a half thousand feet. Um, we pulled the permit and got police uh, lock up for there and we would do a quick run down, turn around, come back up and then released it to public traffic. Uh, and that day was um, four days before the first tire test on the mountain uh, was the most important day of the entire program. Um, I would go to first gear and to hairpins, identical radius and tightness of, of Pikes Peak at uh, 12,000 feet. And the car would not respond. He would see me tipping at 2100 RPM and he would see the car react at 5,000 to 5,200 RPM. Oh, man. Uh, wow. And, and that is brutal. Three-second delay. Um, so that prompted um, a overnight flight from one of the kids that works for me's um, best friend to race up to Garrett turbochargers to, to buy smaller exhaust housings on the turbo and catch a flight out to uh, Aspen to run the car the next day at Aspen Raceway. Well, Aspen Raceway is 8,000 feet and they left the raceway after a day and a half testing and uh, told me that it's the most responsive, incredible, amazing thing that ever, ever run before. Um, I was away filming a Kia commercial up on Loveland Pass, so I didn't get to be there for the test. We went back up onto the mountain and the first day I'm like, well, it's great. We're now responding at 3,500, but look, I've got 1.2 to 1.5 seconds. So we've made it 50% better, but we're still leaving time on the table. Um, I won't go into the details of what they did next. It's, uh, um, it's pretty amazing what they did, but it's okay. all based Magic. On, on, on engine tuning, push, pushing the right keys and talking to the engine to get it to work. Um, but it was something that I had never heard of before. Um, very, very simple. Um, I'll just, I'll just go with the fact that they made it normally aspirated to get it responding. Whoa. Um, okay. And, uh, and then the car just came to life. Um, and we found in the middle section, two to three seconds or more just purely based on response. So you're right. The environment is unique. Gearing needs to be right. Turbochargers, I feel still, needs to be more responsive than peak horsepower. And then you need to have heat management after that. So um, it is a unique environment. You alluded to the fact that you test early in the morning and not only yeah. is the road cold, but ambient temperatures are cold and race day can always be different. I guess that's where a little bit of experience helping new people to the event, such as we had this year, um, understand where we're going to be. I pushed them really hard where they were like, well, these are our temperatures. And I'm like, no, we're not good. We're not in a safe place because this is what's going to happen on race day. Um, so it was a great combination, a great group, and everyone was very open-minded and, and willing to uh, apply and learn. So, yeah, next year, excited for that one. Man, I it bet. sounds like it sounds like it is as frustrating as this year has been. It's like the perfect test and the perfect setup, so that now, if you come back next year, you're now you're you're going to be right where you need to be and have. You could have had a good run this year, but I think you'll have an amazing run next year, based on what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, for sure, and and maybe for the viewers, one of the one of the real fun parts that I had not ever done before is we had. Um, one part that we did have, a, I guess you could call an unlimited budget, was tires. Um, we didn't want the program manager from Bentley did not want to go with a manufacturer that was going to give money to the program. We wanted to have the best tire. Um, it is so important up there to have the compound, to have the sidewall construction, um, and to have everything work in that environment. Um, Although it's a tarmac rally road, as I've mentioned a couple of times, it's not a road race road and a stiff tire is not a uh, confidence inspiring tire. So we did a test uh, both on the mountain and locally where we had three different tire manufacturers. I would be strapped in the car, the tires would be on tire warmers 
and they would fit the tires to the car and I had to push and not know what tire was on. So I wasn't making a preconceived um, kind of evaluation of what tire I wanted best based on previous experience or the name brand. Um, we quickly eliminated one of those. Um, it was actually the fastest tire in testing for the first mile and a half. And then it was half a second slower every other mile after that. Um, and then we narrowed it down to two and we tested those two tires and then came down to what we ran on race day is what I had the most confidence in and trusted the most. And that's in, sorry, I'm babbling a lot here. No. Um, that's in mechanical grip which we're all accustomed with driving production cars and, and rally cars, the feel of the tire to the ground. Now you transition into this world of emptiness, which is downforce. Um, and I call it emptiness because there's no feeling. It's literally just trusting mm. and repeating. You go through that corner in fourth gear at half throttle. Well, car went through there. You go through there at three quarter throttle. Wow, the car went through there. You go through there at full throttle in fourth gear. And you go, wow, the car still went through there. Okay, let's try fifth. And <laughs> that is how I would uh, basically analyze what downforce is. You can only do it by trusting it and even sometimes making a mistake a little too deep. And you're like, I'm still on the road. Okay, I can do that again because the car will do it. Um, so it was just a balance of both. And that was, for me, uh, what kept the event fresh and exciting this year is you know, driving something that was so new, downforce, in a car I've had before but never had the balance and the predictability of this car. So, yeah, I've driven, as you said, two-wheel drive, four-wheel drive, front-wheel drive, uh, normally aspirated, six-cylinder V8s, uh, electric cars, and that's what kind of has kept the event exciting for me. So with that being said, okay, so top five favorite cars at Pikes Peak. Well, that, that's going to have a little bit of an asterisk next to it because I, I started racing Pikes Peak when it was all dirt in 1992. Sure, um, that's okay. Dirt's those fine. Years, those years finished in 2000. And, uh, and for the last 10 years or, geez, 20 years, it's been, it's been become paved in 2012 and then now all paved. Um, I had to adapt my driving style to more of a traditional road racing style, and that is so different and so patient to throttle um, and roll speed versus your traditional rallying of if you're not on the brakes or not on the gas, you're not going fast sort of thing. Right. Um, but you can fight a four-wheel drive car and fight differentials if you're on the gas too early and create an issue that's not actually there. It just needs to be worked out in the driver based on the environment. So uh, two-wheel drive, two drive favorite would be my old uh, 2JZ um Gosh, what is it? JZA 80 Toyota Supra. Um, yeah. Good old days back in the dirt. Um, the most impressive car on power will be the electric car. That was four-wheel drive. That was 1,400 horsepower. If Volkswagen, <laughs> if Volkswagen tells you their IDR was 12, uh, 650 horsepower. Yeah. No, okay. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> And the burst speed on that car was absolutely incredible. It was zero to 60, I think, in 1.6 seconds um, or maybe, maybe less than that, actually. Um, and apparently you could do it reverse as well because the motors didn't care what direction they were going. <laughs> um, scariest car would be uh, Nissan Skyline R32. Um, was just in a transition period. It was uh, right-hand drive, stand, standard uh, H-pattern gearbox, and the HICUS system, which is the full drive that transfers drive from the rear to the front on that car, uh, in the dirt was just not happy. Um, it was rear-wheel drive to, you know, snap rear-wheel drive to understeer. Um, so that one was a challenge. Um, and then I guess, yeah, my all-time favorite now is is – the Bentley GT3. Uh, really? I have, I have never pushed that hard as I did this year with confidence and trust in a car. And it's just, I've never had traction control, as I mentioned. I've never had um, motorsport ABS. And I've always had to run that fine line of doing everything, um, which I enjoy. 
um, but to be complemented by systems that are available um, just only makes it that much easier for yourself. And coupled with a car that had true uh, downforce balance, um, it was it was just a delight everywhere. Pretty awesome. Car. Wow. Yeah. How much how much of an effect was the downforce on the run? Because something that sorry this fly is just making me crazy um something that people might not realize that much uh when you're starting at pike's peak and you're starting at nine thousand feet and you're climbing to fourteen thousand feet the air density is just plummeting as you're going up that mountain and so one of the things i mean we we've we have a little bit of air on our car but it's not it's not much and we haven't really prioritized it a whole lot because as that air density goes down just like you could get something that might work well in qualifying it in the lower sector, but then as you keep continue to go up, it's that, that arrow is going to work differently. And so that's, we've, we kind of haven't like put a whole lot of priority in it for that reason. Did it, did it really make a big difference? And could you feel the difference from the bottom to the top as you're, as you're going up and changing elevation and changing that air density or was it, was it pretty consistent? Yeah. So the standard car is based on uh, a GT3 car. Um, and at that point, a lot of the aero control is based on spring rate. Um, you don't want to crush the car into, into the ground and lose air underneath the front splitter, but you don't want to lose a lot over the top either. So we looked at all of their different spring rates that they had available, and we started testing them along with cambers and so forth. And we got down to the point where they're like, well, we only have one more option but we've never run these before. They're brand new, shiny in the box. And in five years of running these cars, they've never put them on. I said, great, let's put them on. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and at that point, it's, we were running corner speeds of around 120, 130 miles an hour. Um, and on a course, again, that was what I feel is the best developed course for developing a car for Pikes Peak. Um, to understand Pikes Peak as an environment for aviation, um, which is a good rule of thumb to look at, is um, loss of horsepower, which is the same as, as loss of pressure. Um, for every 1,000 feet that you climb, you lose 3%. So this is a lift or downforce factor and also a horsepower factor. So at the start line of Pikes Peak, just shy of 10,000 feet, times that by three, you're at 30% loss. You're at 30% loss on a normally aspirated engine, and you're at 30% loss of downforce. So we took that as a starting point and we increased the size of the rear wing and the size of the front splitter to create 30% more over the standard car. Um, the, the rest comes in spring rate and uh, spring rate of the tire based on the sidewall stiffness um, to complement those items to give you enough crush but not force the car into the ground. Um, we then raised the car because I went very, very soft knowing statically that the car looked really high, but as soon as it was under load, it was going to be in its working zone where the geometry of the suspension wanted to be. Um, and then that number effectively, the critical points of downforce are really the first minute and a half of the run. Uh, okay. thereafter, thereafter, yes, there is a downforce element, but a lot of it is more, as I told my guys um, in layman's terms, I said, don't design a Formula One car, design a drag rate car. Mm. So, so downforce for the first minute and a half to the end of Picnic Ground, and the rest of that, after that, you need a drag race car. Okay. Because it's su such tight corners, long straight to the next really tight corner. So you, you need the start-stop speed versus trying to maintain as much speed through these corners that are so tight that you just can't really maintain a high rate of speed through yeah, and you don't need all that drag either, that horsepower drag when you're trying to go straight falls out either. Exactly. It's a fine balance. Um, you can almost throw too much to where then your terminal speed is too low. And the top section, um, all of those elements are um, required, but um, the most important part for the top section is a pair of these between your legs. <laughs> yes. Well, and it ends man, just with, with the changes that happen with the frost heaves and stuff like that, that, that top section is, it, it catches people. I mean, you, as, as you start spending time up there, you just see the guys that come in. Like this year, it was, it was the S2000 that Brett Dickey was driving that was like crazy stiff sprung. 
and starts hitting these heaves and bumps and it just throws the car off. I, I remember the other, the Life Motorsports GTR just oh, spun yeah. out up top. I mean, it just, it's that, that top section is, is its own animal unto itself, it seems. Yeah, and that's when I kind of go back to what I mentioned, what I used to run with the Mitsubishi, running a stock spring rate ride height and shock. You, you need the mechanical grip. Um, the rubber is not in the road, the temperature is not in the road, and the road is dirty. Um, you, you can go to a local race course that is a, well, you guys will never be in sea level, but we're at sea level. Yeah. Uh, and, and if no one has been on that course and it has been windy for three days, that course is going to be really, really slippery and dirty. Well, Pikes mm. is like that all the time. So uh, you cannot bring a Formula One car to Pikes Peak. Um, uh, right. I, you know, just uh, work J.R. Hildebrand was supposed to be bringing an IndyCar and may happen next year. I'd be very, very excited to see if that theory works um, because I am going to say it won't. Yeah, there was, there was I, I can't remember, maybe it's four or five years ago that Acura, they were going to bring out one of their LMP cars. And oh, yeah. They ended up not, they, they couldn't run because they had enough problems. But I remember we were talking to them, I think at some point, it, actually probably in the PPIR garage and after they had broken or something like that. And they said that it's actually probably for the best that they didn't actually run on race day because they never actually were able to test up top. And they realized that their suspension was so stiff and the car was so low, it probably would have broken itself apart if they tried to, to take the top section at race speed. You're, you're uh, 90, 99.9% right based on what you've been told. Uh, the 0.1% the comes from the engineer that was not willing to change the setup. Uh, <laughs> and and that, would be, that would be true and true. You're, my engineer from KPEX this year, he's like, he drove the car and he's like, it's too soft. It moves around too much. I'm like, no, you're just not used to it. I'm like, everyone here standing in front of me, even Romain Dumas after practice in the middle sections, he said, I race against these cars in Europe and the Bentleys are known for understeering and not turning in. How are you faster than me on this middle section? I'm like, that, that means a lot. It's a non-traditional road race setup. Yeah. Um, and my guys were like the car's too soft it moves around i'm like i drive an off-road car with 24 inches of travel this is not moving around <laughs> yeah six inches of travel is rock solid for for comparison yeah, yeah. so wow. yes i hear what you're saying um but it's again you just you need to come to the event with a open environment uh, or an open mind and um you know top section alone uh Duma is someone who trusts downforce and clearly is a very, very fast driver with, with the, um, the IDR car that they ran up there. Um, we were in comparable cars this year, and the speed difference really just came down to suspension setup. His guys had that thing in the ground, a ton of aero, super stiff, and we were on the top section, which is three and a half miles. We were... 12 and a half seconds faster than him because our car wow. set up different. Man. I, I tell you I, recently, I mean, those bumps, those bumps for me were not there. Right. It's to, to hear that there was any hesitation in bringing you onto the program, but like to hear you talk <laughs> through your approach to the program, like, man, I, I, I would imagine that there's no hesitation now. It's this, it's there's just so many unknowns that you you just you can't know what you're getting into until you run pikes peak a handful of years and it's and it's it's such an out-of-the-box race and that's one of those things that i i mean we we've run into it and we have probably a tenth of the appreciation for that that you have based on all the different platforms that you've run but it's just like you you, you just have to kind of go up there see what happens and then kind of evaluate it seems like it's just such a unique environment yeah and i'm i'm not I'm not the pick to go to Spa. I'm not the pick to go to Le Mans. Um, you know, that's not my wheelhouse. And, um, and it doesn't, quite frankly, excite me. The car excited me, for sure. Um, but, uh, you know, those setups and those trust levels and everything are, are entirely different. Um, so, yeah, it was very personal rewarding. I think this is maybe one of the biggest disasters we had happened with all the work that got put into it, but it was the happiest I ever was at the top after I got to see the sector times as a personal reward to know uh, what I had been able to achieve and get out of the car. So um, yeah, we're, we're excited 
excited for next year, excited for the end of the year to, to hit the Baja 400 and the Baja 1000. Um, and then, uh, and then we'll, uh, we're dusting off the old rally cross car to go play on a gravel road here in a few weeks. So we'll, I saw we'll that. Now this is, this is the, the global rally cross car, the, the global rally cross Hyundai. Yes. The car we won, uh, Daytona, um, round of uh grc and then the long beach la round so now is it is it really just something that you're playing around with or or do you have something kind of in your sights that you're going to do with this car uh and if you can't say you can't say <laughs> no, 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 no. No, it's fine. there shouldn't be any secrets um we were going to bring the jack to uh land's end hill climb and, and grand junction Okay. And, um, we have a customer who is uh, very, very close to renting that car for an event just shortly after that, um, the Nora 500, which is a two-day event down in Baja. Um, or we, we'll need to get it prepped for that. So um, my lead engineer, who comes from 25 years of World Rally, was part of the Hyundai World Rally team that ran all my Rallycross stuff. He's like, why don't we dust off rx1 and i'm like that thing's been sitting in the corner for six or seven years <laughs> i've almost forgotten about it and he's he came in here uh on the weekend and basically worked on it a little bit and it fired straight up and ran through the gears so it, i guess his excitement level was enough to say uh we're going to land's end and the rallycross car that's that's very like cool. a heck of a lot of fun that's awesome. Tasso's going to be—he's going to be jealous. Yes, Tasso. So he, Tasso is uh, one of our one of our normal uh, guys. He runs the hill climbs, and he's going to be at Lands End with Chihuahua stickers on the side of it. Yes. That's the guy. That's yeah, the guy. Yeah, yeah. That's the, the one. Guy. One thing everyone needs to learn about me: if I'm going to do something, I do my research. <laughs> Fantastic. And, and I'm sure he'll be flattered. His uh, co-driver uh, Ash or Ab Abby. Abby, yes. uh, her voiceover is so clear that I've already written down her notes. <laughs> oh, boy. Man, that's going to be some fuel for that race. Wow. Um, and we have ordered uh, Rallycross tires, uh, and I found a company also in Colorado. Um, oh, oh, sorry. I got a call coming in. Let me find this. Man, no problem. Um, I found a company, not the best customer service, but um, they sell a 17-inch rally tire. Um, so oh. we'll be um, putting those on some beadlock rings, uh, rims. So we'll, yeah, put it in its old livery that it was in 2014 um, wow. when it was Daytona. And, and, and I have never run that car on a full dirt rally-style gravel road, so it's going to be super fun. I think it should be an absolute blast. Well, and, and Reese, as we're, as we're kind of winding down here, I, I first want to thank you again for all the time that you've given us. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I do have just a couple more questions. The, the, one, the biggest one that I want to make sure I get in there, because you have driven an electric car and you've driven all these different internal combustion engine cars at Pikes Peak, is electric cheating? Or, or is that really the future? Or is there really, is there still a long way to go for both platforms? Like, do you think there's still significant merits in both platforms running up Pikes Peak? Are we talking uh, commercially or motorsport? Or motorsport. Like motorsport. Um, it, it has its place. Um, and Pikes Peak is definitely an advantage to an electric car. Uh, the torque, the instant Talk, the amount of torque and the absolute zero loss of power you and a short run at 12 miles um, you can't find a better environment to to have a race um, Sebastian Loeb came in 2013 um, 2013 yeah, yeah. Um, and and crushed the all-time record um, with the Peugeot uh, v6 twin turbo and we had put our own effort in that year with a two-wheel drive car. Uh, we finished second to him, and, and I evaluated his time, and I was like, wow, that time is going to be really, really hard to beat. Um, a year later, I get offered an electric car, and the year after that, we get a bit of more development. It was only three people on a private team, and I was 1.2 seconds off him on the top section and 1.2 seconds off him on the middle, 
and then based on aero and everything else, brakes and so forth, we were, I think, 10 seconds off them on the bottom. But it exposed to me if there was going to be a car that beats Loeb's time, it was going to be electric. Um, uh, we never had great success for that program. I think we did like an 851. Um, we had a tire issue because of the torque of the engine. Um, we should have been around the 830s, but I knew a professional program was going to be that time. So uh, in short burst racing, that is, uh, I'm giving you electric, the credits where it should be applied. I think Rallycross is probably the best environment for uh, electric car racing. You have the dynamics of sideways throwing gravel. You have the jumping element. You have uh, the short burst races. Um, and I think that is the best environment for electric car racing. I don't feel that it works in the formula of Formula E. Um, and, you know, in other forms of racing, maybe not. Um, you have Extreme E now, which is doing like an oversized SUV. Mm -hmm. um, the chassis are not great. The suspension's not great. And, but they have a, a message that they're trying to push. Um, so, yeah, I think Rallycross is probably the best environment for electric car racing. Um, but I think we can all testify that there's, there's emotions that are created from sounds and smells. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. and, that, and that is true motorsport. That is true racing. And you fire up a, a V12, a V10, our Rallycross car, that Bentley, uh, a Subaru, whatever it is, um, and you get excited just by the sound. An electric car, when you flick the switch and you go, is it on? It doesn't do anything for you. <laughs> you, you, need to, you need to put the sirens on for people to know that it's actually running. Or, or yes. have a radio station tuned to an exhaust note. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you don't get the flames coming out the uh, turbos. You get flames in an electric car and you're having a bad day. Real yeah, bad day. Yeah, that was one of my biggest fears. Yeah, what can I touch and what can I not touch? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And well, the fact that, that you're, the, the win in the electric car was basically what you're saying, a, kind of a privateer team and how close it was to Loeb's time. I mean, I guess that in and of itself is, is a proof of concept in that environment, but. You know, just have to see where the, where the future goes. So yeah, I guess it's, the, all, it's all going to come down to battery technology. Um, yeah. You know, the Volkswagen program was the next progression in battery cells. We knew the program we were running. If we purchased new batteries, which the car needed, you were buying five-year-old technology. Um, they came up with a cell that was half the weight, twice the power. Um, and their car was nearly a thousand pounds lighter than our car just on weight. So wow. technology is going to continue to change, um, yeah. but it's going to take a pretty serious effort to, to beat VW and Dumas time that they set up there. For sure. Well, and Reese, I mean, you, you've, you said that there's, there's still some of Pike's Peak that excites you is, and, and you're obviously still interested in doing the, the long form desert racing. Is there any other kind of racing that is still really close to your heart and, and gets you, gets you, uh, you know, excited to go to the shop and, and keep working on the cars? Uh, the only, the only racing I watch, the wife loves uh, Formula One, but I think it's because of the Netflix show and it's more based on personalities than anything sure. because they really don't uh, dive into the technology, which is, which is what excites me. Um, it mm -hmm. really comes down to traditional stage rally. It's the only motorsport that I watch. Okay. Do you think, do you think you see in the, in the next handful of years, more participation in stage rally for you or, or just, does it just have to oh. see what happens? I'd love to. Um, unfortunately, the movement of, of marketing, um, sponsors don't really care if you're fast or not anymore. That's why I was quite happy to get this Bentley program because it was based on my performance, not uh, how many followers I have next to my verified little blue dot. Hmm. Um, so um, how many opportunities come my way in the next few years? I don't know. Maybe I need to shave the gray off my beard and so I look younger. Um, <laughs> But I think electric car racing uh, with SUVs and trucks, you know, I'm really surprised that stage rally from a marketing standpoint doesn't have more manufacturers playing in that world. Hmm. That's an interesting point. Well, and would love to see what, what you could do again, if the, if the Jackal would fit into some of those stage rally classes. I mean, that would just be really, really interesting to see that kind of a car go out there and run because it would, it would be different, but it, man, it would be, 
really exciting to watch, I think. Yeah, for sure. Very cool. Well, Reese, uh, you know, unless there's anything else that you wanted to mention, I, I don't want to keep you too much longer. No, no, I think right. we covered it. Greatly appreciate all you guys, Tom, and um, hope that sure. red racing seat isn't hurting your back there. Oh, no, super comfortable. Yeah. Still. <laughs> well, and, and Reese, I, I do want to say just at the end here, so uh, for people that want to follow you, would you say that Instagram and, and your, your new YouTube channel are the best places to kind of stay on top of what you're working on and what you're, what you're doing currently? Yeah, we had a lull on our YouTube channel for a long time. It was kind of lost in between uh, GoDaddy and Yahoo saying you need to log on through here. They need, you need to log on to there. And it didn't work for about eight years or so more. Maybe. Yeah. So we relaunched it uh, with some of the videos of what we're doing. Um, I'm, I don't go on Facebook. Um, I try to have a life. So Instagram is, for me, it's the easiest tool to use. And I interact with most people there. Uh, they're answering questions with a direct message or so forth. But um, yeah, that's Very probably cool. the best color. Yep. Nice. Well, yeah. So if anybody wants to stay on top of, you know, whatever your next secret project is going to be, Instagram is, is the place to find you. Um, well, so, so as we're wrapping it up here, I will just, you know, thank everybody for watching. Thanks, Reese, very much again for your time. Really appreciated it. Really enjoyed the conversation. We'll yes, have sir, to sit down and much. pick your brain again. Uh, yeah, we're, yeah. yeah, Reese, I had one thing, too. Oh, uh, before yeah. you leave, you'll have to thank your wife for the uh, burgers and beers. They were a great hit. When I was telling everybody these were the, the Reese Millen burgers and beers, everyone was like, oh, my God, thank you guys so much. So everybody had a good time with it. Like, these are really Reese Millen burgers and beers? Like, yeah, they well, are. I guess that's why I didn't get one. Oh. <laughs> everybody got too excited. Yes. All right, guys. All right. Thanks very much, Reese. All right. Thanks, Reese. Cheers. Talk to you later. See ya. Bye. 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 All right. Well, thanks very much for listening and for staying to the end. And as always, stay tuned with Flatterns Tuning.